Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Well, my friends, it is good to be with you. It's good to open the scriptures this morning. I have my Jesus and coffee mug, which this morning is a Jesus and tea mug uh, that I got from a friend of mine in church. There's tea. Keep as this weather cools and fall and winter, the dreaded word for many of you, uh, sets in. We, we have much to be thankful for, including water, including food, including God's good provision for us this day. And so I invite you to turn this morning in your Bibles uh, to Luke chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you a Bible. You can get one at the back of the auditorium. Feel free to get up and get one. Uh, Even right now, there's a stack of them. And if you don't have one, take it with you. We'd love to have you read it. Uh, We believe one of the greatest ways God transforms our life is through the consistent reading of his word. Because in reading his word, we get to sense his heart. And we get to know him more deeply and more intimately. And so we're going to look at a familiar story today um, from Luke 15. Now there's actually three stories in Luke 15. Luke 15 has a story of a lost sheep, a lost coin, and what is called the prodigal or or the parable of the prodigal son. Um, We're going to look at just this last one, the, the, the parable of the prodigal son, which is what we normally call it. But I love what Dr. Ken Bailey calls it. He calls it something like this. He calls it the parable of the compassionate father and his two lost sons. Because there's not just one son in view here, there's actually two. And that matters to the story of what Jesus is trying to teach the people who are around him. And so um, the big idea of this story is this. You could put it simply and say, heaven rejoices when lost things are found. Heaven rejoices when lost things are found. You could make a little bit longer of a big idea if you want, and you could put it this way. God loves his lost children. And he rejoices when they, through repentance, find their worth in him. God loves his lost creation. People whom he made in his image. And he rejoices when they, through repentance, find their worth in him. So, we're going to jump into the story. Hopefully you're in Luke chapter 15. And would you pray with me one more time? Our Father and our King, Give us eyes to see, and give us ears to hear, and give us hearts to set upon the truth of your word. Holy Spirit, would you be the teacher this morning as you lead and you guide us into all truth. For the glory of the risen Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, so I I know we will get down to the parable of the lost son or the parable of the father with two lost sons, but I want to set a context for you. Jesus is teaching throughout a whole bunch of different places. And um, it says in verse 1, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So, so Jesus is teaching, and he has a group around him. And, and this group is made up of a whole bunch of different people. 
On the one hand, he has people from every walk of life, tax collectors, which were considered kind of the lowest of the low. They they were essentially people who would extort and cheat and steal from the people in order to pad their own pocketbooks, and they would use the authority of Rome to make themselves rich. They were hated by the religious people of Jesus' day. Absolutely hated. Um, But then you have sinners, and we don't know all of the terms of which comprise this word, likely because we know Jesus' ministry, he's engaged with, in, in, in dealing with and talking with people who come from a sordid past, like prostitutes. Pe- people who have a story that is one of demon possession. People who have a story where they're considered to be less because they're lame or they're blind. Any number of these things. Jesus is gathering and he has a crew of Pharisees, but he has this crew of, of people who the society would have said they are far from God and, um, and why are they here? Don't they know they need to get their act together in order to come and be a part of a religious gathering like this teaching? But Jesus welcomes them and, and he welcomes them to the extent that, that while they're approaching to listen to him, the Pharisees and the scribes, so we talked about the Pharisees last week, and the Pharisees are people who are very religious. Generally speaking, they're very well loved by the people. Um, Generally speaking, they are the teachers and the shepherds and the pastors and the um, seminary professors of, of the Jewish people at this time. We met Nicodemus last week. He's a Pharisee, but he's a Pharisee who is also a member of the Sanhedrin, meaning that he's like a ruling member of the Jewish ruling council in this first century, which is a big deal. And so these Pharisees and the scribes, people who, who write and study scripture, these religious people are complaining. And I love the word for complaining here. It's, it's the word that you could translate um, to grumble. It's the word diagoguzen. All right. Can you say diagoguzen? Yes, diagoguzen. And you can kind of imagine home, kids, if you're going to go home, I hope, hopefully you're not going to complain later today in any way. But if you did, it would kind of sound like diagoguzen, diagoguzen. You know, it's kind of, it kind of has this, this sound to it. Um, they're complaining. And they're complaining because um, they say that this man, Jesus, he welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And you would be like, well, he welcomes it. He eats with them. What's the big deal about having a meal with someone? To understand this, I I love what uh, Joachim Jeremiah says. He says this, to understand what Jesus is doing in eating with sinners, it is important to realize that in the East, even today, to invite a man to a meal was an honor. It was an offer of peace, of trust, of brotherhood and forgiveness. In short, sharing a table meant sharing life. In other words, the people who you sat across from, usually on the floor, you'd have these big plates because these were common meals. Oftentimes you ate with your hands. If you go to the Middle East today, you have pieces of bread that you tear off. Sorry for those of you who are gluten-free, but it's delicious bread. You tear off a piece of bread, you dip it into something. When I was over in the Middle East this last year, they actually said, uh, I was sitting across from a Westerner, but he's lived in in that part of the country for some time. He said, normally we just put the food on your plate. And he said, he's like putting food on my plate. He's like stocking me up because we're having this meal together. And he said, if I was truly Middle Eastern at this point, I would actually start to feed you. And I said, thank you. No. (laughs) 
to share a meal was a very intimate thing. And so for Jesus to share a meal and to invite people to his table should not be overlooked. And it wasn't overlooked by the Pharisees and the scribes. Jeremiah says this, continues saying this, the inclusion of sinners in the community of salvation achieved in table fellowship, he says, is the most meaningful expression of the message of the redeeming love of God. So by inviting people and welcoming them at his table, not just saying, yeah, you can sit over there, but by welcoming people to his table, Jesus is saying, you matter. No matter your past, you matter. And he begins to teach them. And he begins to reveal himself to them in a way in which they then begin to respond to this revelation. I love what another writer says. He says this, he says, because God justifies the ungodly, Jesus' table fellowship may have demonstrated a divine willingness to provide whatever was necessary for repentance in the truest sense of the word. That is a loving response to God's offer of love. So I told you last week, one of the biggest differences between Jesus and the Pharisees is that Jesus would invite all sorts to eat at his table. And the Pharisees would essentially say, you have to go through this process, that process, and this process in order for me to sit down at the table with you because they did not want to make their hands and their body ceremonially unclean. So Jesus' ministry was very different. And so Jesus tells three parables to illustrate God's heart for people. And the first one, uh, you, f- you find this coin, uh, or sorry, the first one is the sheep. We won't talk about that, but the big idea is this. When the sheep is found, everybody rejoices. And then the second one, there's this lost coin. And this woman goes looking for this coin. She has 10, she loses one. She finds it and she says, rejoice with me because I have found. And then he comes to this third parable. Instead of reading it all in one fell swoop, we're going to go ahead and just read it as we study it today. But I want you to see God's heart for people who are far from him. And I want you to find yourself in the story. Who do you tend to be more like? Let's read verse 11 of Luke chapter 15. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them, all right? The first two verses. Let's just take a look at these for a minute. So a man had two sons. Jesus begins saying, hey, there's a story, and it's not just about one. It's actually about two sons, and they both matter in this story. This parable is not just about a prodigal son. It's about both of his sons, their relationship with him, their relationship together, and their relationship within the community, Jesus is talking to a crowd, and people are finding themselves in this story. And that's part of his genius in sharing it. And the son comes to him here, and he says to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. Now, that may sound like, oh, hey, can I get an advance on my allowance? Can I get um, something that you're going to give me someday anyway, but can I just get, get it now? Culturally, here is what is going on. The youngest son comes to his father, and he says, I want my inheritance. In the ancient period, the only way you get the inheritance is for the father to die. What he did was he came to his father and he said, in no small words, Father, I wish you were dead because I want your stuff. That's what he said. Imagine your dad, right? Or imagine your dad. You come up to him and you say, Dad, can I have all your things? 
I'd rather you be dead and I have it than you be alive and we be together. In no two words, the, the younger son is basically saying, I don't care about you. I don't care about the values you've taught me. I don't care about our family and the community here. What I care about is what I want. And that's what he says, more or less. But notice, it says, um, he, he asks, can I have the share? And it says just kind of casually, so he distributed the assets to them. Now, Culturally speaking, the father did not have to do this. In fact, culturally speaking, what most likely would have happened at this point is that the father would have exploded and disciplined his son for the cruel implications of his demand. He would have said, you want me dead? Son, get out of my sight. He he would have maybe pushed him aside. He maybe would have reprimanded him. Culturally speaking, and this is not a usual occurrence, Um, he would have been sharply reprimanded and shamed by his father. And it's one thing for the father to give the son things that are his, but in the ancient period, you, you not only had to say, this is yours, but you also had to give the right to be able to use something. So, like if someone were to give me something, if my dad were to give me something, he would have to say, hey, by the way, when, you, when, when I'm gone or whatever, this couch will be yours. But if you wanted to give it to me sooner, he would say, here, take the couch and go ahead and use it in your home, right? He, he not only gives the authority to use it one day, he gives the right to possess it now. And in the ancient period, you could not ask for that and coerce someone into that. This had to be a decision of the father's will. He had to say, I decide to give this to you, my son. So that's what's happening in the second part of verse 12 there. He distributed the assets to them. Notice the to them there. It's not just to the younger son, it's to both of them. So the younger son gets his share, the older son gets his share, and likely the older son's share would have been larger given the various things going on culturally of that time. So Instead of just receiving the property and not being able to do anything with it, because it was likely a, kind of a property that he would have inherited, um, the father said, basically, this heirloom is yours, and you can also utilize this for whatever it is you're wanting to use it for. And we find that in verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. So the son, he takes all the stuff, he goes away to a far country. In other words, he's not staying at home. He's getting out of Dodge. He's moving out of the tri-state area because he does not want to be near his family. He does not want to be near his father. This is not just about resources. This is about relationship. He wants to have separation and so he goes and he squanders his possessions, is how, is how mine reads, squandered his estate in foolish living. Now, we, we don't know all the ins and outs of how he did this, but the word squander means to live recklessly. It means to live without thinking or being concerned. He just went and started spending money on whatever he wanted to do. It's like having an open credit card that you have all the assets for, and you just start buying and buying and buying and buying. You're not thinking about what you're doing. You're not investing wisely. You're just going based upon your heart's desires. 
he goes and he spends all that he has in foolish living. And it says this in verse 14. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Imagine you're a boy. You grew up within a father's estate and this father has a lot. I mean, later he's going to kill a fattened calf. So he has some wealth to him. He has servants. He has wealth to him. This son grew up having everything he could ever want. But now he finds himself after a whole host of prideful bad decisions. He finds himself in need. Can you imagine what it's like to be in need, that kind of need for the very first time in your life? Not wondering where your next meal is coming from, not wondering where you're going to sleep or wondering where you're going to sleep that night. He's had everything, but now he has absolutely nothing because he has squandered his possessions and he's lived without thinking or being concerned about the impact of his decision. The lad we find in verse 15, he goes to work, then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. So his despair that started here, he goes to try and find some sort of job, but there's a famine in the land, and he just keeps going down and down and down and down. And it's in that process where he begins to learn some things about himself. What he had was not, first of all, rightfully all his. What, what he had back at his dad's house was something that was a gift. Not, not, not just having food on the table, but being able to be in a relationship he begins to feel the pang of the separation that he has caused from his family. And I don't think he's come to full senses yet, but he begins this process through experiencing the hardship and the struggle of life to where he begins to move towards saying, maybe I did something wrong here. Verse 17, well, verse 16, just another note. Um, the reason pigs are there is not because they loved bacon or anything like that. It's because Jesus is telling a Jewish story to a Jewish audience. And with the young lad going off to a far country, going off and engaging in caring for pigs, he's making himself unclean, right? A Jewish person, an observant Jewish person would not eat pork. That's, that's a no-go. Um, they wouldn't do other things. There are certain things that are just no-goes, and this was one of them. You would not have had this if he had grown up in his father's house who was a good Jewish dad, and that's the presumption here. And so not only is he starving for food, but he's working amongst the most unclean animals within the sphere. Verse 17 says this, he says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. I love this phrase, when he came to his senses. Literally, the text says, when he came to himself. It is not only in coming to himself that the process of repentance begins. He's going to have a story of going back to his dad, but it begins by looking honestly at his surroundings. 
There's a lot of people today who, if they were to take an honest look at themselves, leaving, leaving a family heritage and going off to, to school and parting it up and thinking that you can find all of this joy and satisfaction in all that that provides, it's, it's fleeting. Eventually, many times, you come to your senses and you go, oh man, what did I do? You go down a career path and it's, and it's funneled by how can I get more and how can I get more and how can I get more? How, how can I have the biggest house on the block and the largest boat in the shed and live in the most important place? Eventually, many people come to themselves and they say, however big my house is, I'm still miserable. I still have this hole inside my heart that can't be satisfied by stuff. Some people go down the drug route, right? They, they seek to find their, um, their next high on whatever fix they can get. It's not where you find joy or happiness or meaning, fulfillment. Some people go from relationship to relationship to relationship thinking that that person is going to bring them satisfaction. But they're not. What Jesus is doing is he's telling a story about a, a boy who has this desperate need, as all of us do, for God to be in his life, the Father to be in his life. But he has to come to the end of himself and his pride in order to receive that which God wants to give him. He goes, he squanders his possessions, he comes to himself and he says, um, I'll get up, verse 18. I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. Now, what's interesting about this that I learned this week is there's basically two parts to his comment here. The first one is this. He'll get up, he'll go to his father. So there's this action that, that signifies a degree of repentance. But he's going to say to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven. In other words, against God. Heaven is often used as a synonym for God in the Gospels and in that period. I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's the first part, right? I, I've sinned. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the second part is this, and the distinction will matter in just a minute here. The second part he intends to say to his dad is in the second half of verse 19. Make me like one of your hired workers. What this lad has done is he has disgraced his family. He's taken all these resources that were entrusted to him by his father and he's gone and he has squandered them. Now, he's in such a low place that he's willing to go back to his family because he wants a job, because he needs food to live. But as he's going back, he's not going back saying, I'm your son. He's going back saying, make me like a hired worker. A, a hired worker in this time is someone who does not have, um, does not belong to the estate. He's an outsider of the community or of the family that hires him. He has no personal interests in the affair of his master, his temporary master. He is merely a casual laborer to be employed when required. His position was therefore precarious, but he was himself a free man without any ties to anyone. My point is this. I think the son goes back because he wants to have what his father will provide for him by way of a job, but he does not want to have a relationship with his father. Think about that. Dad, 
Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Make me a hired worker. Which the father would have heard, he doesn't want to be part of the family. He doesn't want to be a part of the community. Which begs the question, does he really know what he's done? He, he wants to make money to feed himself, and presumably, says Dr. Bailey, he wants to work back and make up for the shame of losing all these possessions that had been given to him. I don't know about you, um, I, I don't go to many high school reunions, any high school reunion people in the house, okay, maybe not. I don't go to college reunions really either, um, but typically, at least from observation, when, when we go to these things, we're like, oh man, it's been 20 years, I want to make sure I look my best to the, the guys I used to hang out with, or I, I want to make sure I have the best car so they, they can see I've done something with myself, right? We, we have a bit of self-consciousness sometimes going back to our past. For this boy to go back to his hometown, it would not have happened under normal circumstances, especially because he's lost everything. I read this week that it's, it's almost unheard of for a Middle Eastern person to go back to the community that they came from with less than what they left with. Because to go back, they say, well, you had all this and now you're worth nothing. And it's utter shame. It's utter shame. It, it, there's shame from the community here because... The community is judging, what have you done? How have you done it? How have you engaged in all this? But the lad is so desperate that he goes back, and Dr. Bailey contends that it is his intention to make back the things that he had lost in order to redeem his name. In other words, he's going back to his dad, not because he wants to be a part of the family, not because he wants to have an interest in any of those relationships. He's going back simply because he needs to eat. He wants his father to make him a hired hand so that he can redeem what he has lost and not lose face with the community. In short, he intends to save himself. He does not want any grace. He wants to redeem his honor, but he doesn't want to sacrifice his pride. For him, it's all about him, and it's still to an extent all about him. Sure, He's taking upon himself the, yeah, I lost all those resources, and for that, I need to repent. But he's not turning yet from the personal loss of relationships and family and community and all the things that really truly matter in life. This isn't unlike many of us. Many times we go out in our own desires and our pride and we seek to become ourselves. And to, to one extent, that's not bad. It's not bad for a newly married couple to go establish their own identity as a husband and wife. But to go and to separate in such a dramatic way where it becomes, how can we make this work? It dishonors our families. It dishonors reputations. In the end, we think sometimes that we have to make it up. We, we have to go through this whole litany of things in order to be accepted again by God. We, we buy into the lie that what brings us identity is what we do. And we buy into that lie because our pride is really more important to us than the honor of our community, our family, and most of all, our Heavenly Father. Verse 20 picks up the story. It says, So he got up and he went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and filled with compassion he ran. He threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him. 
Just imagine this dad. We don't know the story uh, length. Jesus doesn't tell us that. But imagine this dad, the picture he's painting. You've seen your kid go off dramatically shaming you, dramatically shaming the community, wanting all of your stuff. You go off to a distant land. And the father's picture here is one who's waiting to see him on the horizon. If this lad had gotten to the edges of the community, likely he would have been shamed by the community for acting in the way he did. That's just common Middle Eastern practice. It's It's an honor and shame culture. The honor of the community, the honor of the father is what matters the greatest. And here, this son had dishonored his dad. And he's receiving both the the shame of his community, and he's also living in a degree of shame himself. But while he is a long way off, the father sees him, which means the father's looking. And it says, filled with compassion, he ran to meet him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now, in the Middle East, that was not weird. Maybe, you know, if you're an older guy and your dad comes up and gives you a big hug and a kiss, maybe that's weird for you. I don't know. But, but it, this is just like the, the highest picture of acceptance, the highest picture of love. And it comes from compassion. The father, in giving his son these things, he essentially took upon the son's shame on himself And he sees his son afar, and he, again, takes shame upon himself. But his shame in the community comes from this compassion that he has for his son. The the word compassion means affection, love. It's not just a feeling. Compassion is not just, oh, I feel bad, right? Compassion is much more than that. It's the word that is used to describe how Jesus... um, has a heart towards people right before he's about to do something on their behalf. One of the great stories where compassion is, is present is in Luke 7. You can look at it later, but it's a story of a widow at a place called Nain, and her son dies. So here she is. She has no husband. She has no other family. She's a widow, which means that she's destitute, especially without a son to care for her in her older age. Jesus sees this widow, and they're carrying this, um, I think it's called a beer. It, it's a, it's a uh, funeral um, thing where his body's on. They're carrying it outside of the community. Jesus stops them, and it says, filled with compassion, he raises that boy to life. He works on her behalf because of his compassion. And that's what describes the father's compassion for his son here. He's about to do something on the son's behalf. He ran, and this was a cultural no-no for a patriarch. You were not to run because um, you deserve the respect of the community. And yet the father runs. He lays aside his image. He lays aside his pride. He lays aside his standing, and he runs to meet his son who is coming toward him. While they're a long way off, he, he threw his arms around him, and he kisses him. The father embraces him in a long way off. And by doing so, he does several things. Number one, he demonstrates to the son by action, I love you. You're my boy. I accept you. But not only does he demonstrate to his son this compassion, he demonstrates to the community his compassion for his son. 
Like I said, the community would have shown up and they would have um, shamed the boy for squandering the possessions, for going off, for doing all these things. But the community says, wait, why is his dad hugging him? Why is his dad running? What is it about this father? Notice the son's speech. In verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. In other words, I've sinned against God and in your sight. But notice what the son says. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Stop. What didn't he say? He did not say, make me like your hired hand. Remember, a hired hand is someone who is intentionally excluded from the community. They're just there for work. He wanted to be a hired hand. But in experiencing the compassion of the father, I believe it's the father's compassion that moves the son to a point of humility and repentance needed for him to say, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, stop. He's not out for his pride. He's not out to maintain his image. He's not going to try and make everything back to pay his father back so that he's his own person. He's simply willing to recognize, I have sinned. And the father has demonstrated compassion and acceptance. The story's not over. Verse 22, so the first section really deals with that younger son. We'll do these next two sections quickly. Um, The middle section in verses 22 through 24 says this, but the father told his slaves, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it and let us celebrate with a feast because the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. What does Jesus do in telling this story? He models that the father not only says, son, I accept you. He says to the community, by the way, I accept him. By the way, we accept him. And he throws a party. He he puts status symbols on him. A robe that belonged to the dad for special occasions. Sandals, which the common ordinary um, servant would not have likely worn. Um, He puts... He he essentially restores him to the status of son, not because he deserved it, not because he earned it. In fact, because it was just the father's compassion that led him to that. They began to celebrate. Verse 23 says, bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. Now there's no ancient um, refrigeration or ancient freezers here. So when you slaughter a calf, like that's a big animal. Um, Estimates say it would have fed 100 plus people. So the the father's not slaughtering a calf because he's like, let's have a feast and eat a lot of meat. By slaughtering a calf, he's essentially making an invite to the rest of the community because it would have been dishonorable not to invite the community to such a slaughtering and, and the party that comes from that. He essentially invites the community and he says, I want you to come and celebrate with me. It's not just about the son being far off and being... Um, reconciled to his dad. It's about the son also being reconciled to the community. You could think of it this way. Jesus, when, when he's asked the greatest commandments, he says, you're to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is like it. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. 
In the first one, Jesus talks about this is the vertical relationship with God, and we see it in this passage. The father restores the son to himself. The, the son receives that and, and humbles himself and repents of his sin. And he, he's received and he's restored to the father. But now the father says, we have more restoration work to do. So he throws a party. And the community comes and they began to celebrate. Which means the father cares not just about his relationship. He cares about how the son engages with everyone else. But that's not the end of the story. So you have the father and the son, the younger son. You have the father in the community with the son. But now you have this third person or the third group, which is really the second person, the second son, because it's a story about two. It says in verse 28, then he became angry. Oh, sorry, verse 25. Now the older son was in the field. And as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and did not want to go in. All right, so here's the boy, the older son, the one who also received his inheritance, but the one who actually never left the community. He's been in the community the whole time. But what we see here is that the, the older son does not want restoration. And we actually see this earlier in the story because it was the older brother's responsibility. In this case, when the, when the youngest son says, dad, I wish you were dead, I want your stuff. The older brother had a social responsibility to reconcile the younger son to his father. But all he does is he receives what's coming his way. He keeps his head down. He keeps doing all the religious things. Because while the one son went off to a far place and showed his distance from the father, what we find in the story is that the older son also has distance from the father. And he lives in the same house. He does not like um, that, that this party has been called. He does not like that his father has accepted and received his younger brother back into the community. He becomes angry and does not want to go in. But notice what it says in the second half of verse 28. So his father came out. All right? The father went to run to meet the younger son. The father comes out from a party he is hosting to talk to his older son. Not because he has to, but because he's filled with compassion. And the same compassion he shows the younger boy, he shows the older boy. And he says to him, and, and, and the father came out and he pleaded with him. He's asking him, come celebrate. Your brother was lost, is found. Come and let us be together again. The older son replies to his father in verse 29, look, I've been slaving many years for you. It's interesting he says slaving because he's a son. Not only is he a son, he's an inheritor of probably two-thirds of the estate, and yet he looks at his dad as a slave driver. He says, I've been slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice it does not say, but when my brother, it says, when this son of yours came, 
Who has devoured your possessions and your assets with prostitutes? You slaughtered the fat and calf for him. The father responds to his son. He says, son, he said to him, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. The father values restoration and reconciliation, being made right, not just with the younger son, but also with the older son. And he pleads with him, let's celebrate together. And as a father, he has the say to make anything go in this family. His authority is not questioned whatsoever, culturally speaking, except for by his sons, I guess. The father wants to restore this vertical relationship between his boys and him, but he wants to then also restore their relationship to one another and their relationship to the community. Principle of living is this. Biblical restoration is both is between both a person and God, this vertical relationship, but it's also between the person and the community around them, this horizontal. And we should always be ready to reconcile. Jesus encourages this in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're offering your gift at the altar, there you remember that someone has something against you. What are you to do? You're to leave your stuff there, go be reconciled, and come and offer your gift. The Apostle Paul writes it this way. He says, as far as it is possible with you, live at peace with all people, including, of course, with God. The older son is supposed to step into the situation, but he doesn't. He cares more about obeying the rules than having a relationship with his father. He doesn't openly defy his father. What he does is he quietly dishonors his father and his family by not seeking reconciliation. By his disdain for the father's decision to offer grace and for his hatred for his brother, he demonstrates that it's not just one son who went off to a far country and got lost. One didn't go off to a far country and was equally lost. The older brother, it's interesting, he never responds in Jesus' story. Why? Think about who Jesus is talking to. The point is this. Jesus is talking to Pharisees. Religious people who want to do this and this and this and this and this and this in order to be made right before God, in order to have standing in the community, because what defiled them on the outside was more important than the things that defiled them in the inside. And his point to them is, who is the father? What's his character like? What is he willing to do to restore people who are far from him into relationship with him? And the answer is, he's willing to go a long way. It's why the son came. It's why Jesus came to restore sinners to God. You and I, to God. Not because we earned it, because we can't. Not because we deserve it, because we surely don't. But because he loves us. Because we are made in his image. And the point is this, will the Pharisees, the religious people, recognize their sin and their need to be reconciled to God, humble themselves, and embrace people who are far from God? I asked you at the beginning to think about, as we talked, what son are you like? 
you might be like the younger son who's in a faraway land. You've decided to, to um, shake off all the religious things and, and values that you've grown up with, and you find yourself at a point where you're squandering what God has given you. You're squandering what your family has done, and you've created distance because you want your pride. You don't want to have shame within the community, so you just pull yourself out from the community, and you think that you can have your own pride, and, and everyone looks at you as great outside, and God simply comes to you and he says, that is a dead-end road. It's a dead-end road. The Father invites us in to relationship because he loves you so much that he doesn't want to just save you from your sins. He wants to walk with you today and tomorrow and the next day. He wants all people to find their identity, their worth, their meaning in him because that's the only place you can find it. Are you like the younger son? Are you like the older son? Very religious, very scrupulous. You look at the people who don't do things the way you think they should be doing them, who are far from God especially, and you go, why do they do that? And you begin making barriers for them to God. The message of the gospel is this. We were all once dead in our transgressions and sins. All of us who are followers of Jesus, we, we all experienced a time in which we were far from God. But what happens over time for some of us is we, come, we become very religious, but not very spiritual. We become very, very focused on the outward things that can defile us. And that's not to say that God doesn't care about how we walk. He most certainly does. And there's number, numerous passages to talk about that. But God's heart for people is that they don't find their identity in what they do. They find their identity in him. Maybe you're a religious person here today. Maybe you've grown up within the church. and You've grown up within these processes. But, but you look out and you go, oh, this world is just coming to something. I think God's message is this. God has compassion for people far from him. And so should we. Where we want to make all these hoops for people to jump through to come to God, the only hoop they need to come to is the end of themselves. And in losing themselves, Jesus says, You find yourself. Which son do you most resemble? I have a challenge for you this week. We, we live in a um, sometimes divisive world. Yeah, we live in a sometimes divisive world, often divisive world. And many times the people of God can be known for being divisive, right? I, trust me, I've yelled, at my TV, or I've yelled at my TV screen, I've yelled at my computer screen. When I see something, I just go, oh my word, can you believe? What would it look like if we had the heart of the Father towards people? I'm going to tell you, it's not something that we're going to get on our own strength. What would it look like for us to leave these doors today and with God's help say, Father, would you show me how I can exhibit compassion towards people who are far from you? I'm not saying that there still aren't disagreements in our world. I'm not saying that you have to agree with things that are clearly unbiblical. In fact, don't. What I'm saying is this. Our posture as the people of God should be to say, can I introduce you to my dad? He's this great guy who met me with great compassion. 
God is going to give each one of us several opportunities this week, beginning with the moment you walk out these doors to engage with people. Actually, maybe before you walk out these doors to engage with people. I want to encourage you and challenge you. Would you ask God to lead and guide you in those conversations? Would you see someone coming up to you and say, God, would you help me to bless them? God, would, would you help me to show them their worth in your eyes? Would you consider humbling yourself and saying, God, I want this message not to be about all the stuff I normally engage with, but in the midst of that, I want people to see the inherent value that they have as people made in the image of God and the relationship that God wants to have with them as his children through faith in Jesus. It's my encouragement to you today. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.